Welcome to HJ Talks About Social Housing, a dedicated podcast series from our social housing team at Hugh James. In this podcast, we talk about the latest sector developments and topical issues to help provide some practical guidance on all aspects affecting housing associations. We are lawyers, so we will touch on the legal standpoints surrounding the topics, but don't worry, we'll keep the legal ease to a minimum. Welcome to this Hugh James podcast. Uh, my name is Rob Phillips. I'm Head of Property Litigation here at Hugh James. Today, we are going to be discussing the affordability of capital works for leaseholders. And I'm joined by my colleague, Rebecca Rees. I'm uh, Rebecca Rees. I'm a Senior Associate in the Property and Housing Management team. Now, Becky, uh, service charge costs have been an issue in the sector for quite a while, haven't they? Uh, how has that uh, been affected by the events of this year? Yes, yeah, so we've been working with the social housing sector for many years um, and particularly since the Welsh Housing Quality Standard was instituted in 2002, social landlords have tried many different ways of trying to make service charges affordable for leaseholders because what the WHQS really highlighted was that when substantial works are um, required to a property, the spike in service charge costs can be very, very difficult for many leaseholders to afford um, and it was already a challenge and of course as with everything else this year everything financial has become more challenging although it has to be said that the government protections which were put in place for commercial rents and um, protecting tenants against possession for rent arrears don't have any impact whatsoever on service charges so service charges have remained payable throughout and I think the other thing to bear in mind when it comes to affordability is that a lot of the leasehold flats we're talking about are owned by older people who purchase their flats under the right to buy um, a number of years ago. So it can be a very challenging question for landlords. Um, some of the works which are done are funded by uh, by grant funding, but there's many works which aren't, and so they, there's no option really but to charge service charge for them. You mentioned uh, WHQS, and that, that's virtually complete, isn't it? Um, do you think this is an opportunity for landlords to take stock and consider perhaps how future works will be funded and paid for? Um, and I, I suppose beyond that question, what do you think landlords should be thinking about? Um, yes, it is absolutely an opportunity to, to think about how best to fund works going forward to try and avoid those spikes in charges becoming payable. Um, and in terms of what landlords should be thinking about, uh, we need to go back to the general principles. So the first important general principle is that service charges are governed by the terms of the lease and that charges will only be payable if the lease provides that they're payable. So um, a key issue which I'm often asked to advise about is whether or not the lease allows a landlord to charge for improvements for example, um, and where the line falls between improvement and repair. Um, So a lot of older right-to-buy leases only enable a landlord to charge for repairs, um, but of course a lot of works are improvements, um, and in particular a lot of the WHQS works have been improvements, so it can be quite tricky to identify where the line falls between the two. You also have to bear in mind that it's the lease which will set out how the charges are going to be billed, so what the accounting period is and um, when when the charges which are incurred within what periods are going to be billed, whether a landlord can have a reserve or a sinking fund and so on. So the very first question you need to to, to look at is what the lease allows, both in terms of what can be charged and when. Um, Then the second rule to be aware of is that sums need to be billed within 18 months of being incurred um, and that's a statutory provision, Section 20B of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985. That provides that if any of the relevant costs which are taken into 
account in determining the amount of any service charge were incurred more than 18 months before a demand is served on the tenant, then the tenant won't be liable to pay um, any part of the service charge which is that old. So there's the 18-month limit which landlords need to make sure they comply with so the service charge demands go out within that time of when the costs are incurred. If the demand is not sent out within 18 months, um, then the landlord won't be able to charge for it. Although there is a provision in Section 20B under which um, the landlord can notify the tenant of the works, but they need to make sure they do one or the other. And as well as uh, having to fall within the terms of the lease, you've also got Section 19 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985. Now, that requires that service charges are reasonable in amount. Reasonable in amount can sometimes mean affordable, um, or at least the question of affordability does play a part in the question of whether the service charge is reasonable. Um, In the case uh, back in 2015 of Waller uh, and London Borough of Hounslow, uh, the tribunal there was drawing a distinction between repairs and improvements. The way in which the majority of leases are drafted makes the landlord's requirement to undertake repairs uh, a contractual requirement. Um, Whereas uh, if you look at the question of um, improvements, there is an inherent discretion in that case for the landlord to carry out those um, improvements or not. Um, But nevertheless, if the landlord exercises its discretion, then the tenant's going to be obliged to pay the costs pursuant to the terms of the lease. So where there's um, such a landlord's discretion, the tribunal in that case of Waller confirmed um, that the landlord um, has to carry out a more wide-ranging duty um, to take into account the views of the tenant, including on the question of, of affordability. Now, I know the question of affordability was very much in landlords' minds when carrying out uh, WHQS works, uh, which, as, as you've already said, Becky, often uh, amounted to improvements pursuant to the terms of the lease. But um, there was an additional element here, wasn't there, linked to the fact that notwithstanding the terms of the leases, the works weren't necessarily discretionary? Um, Yes, absolutely. So um, affordability is an issue for all capital works. um, But of course, the the element when something is required by WHQS or the decent home standard, um, the works aren't necessarily discretionary. So they might not be obligatory under the lease, but they are obligatory in terms of statute. Um, I'm not aware of any particular challenges to charges on that basis, but it is quite an interesting point. But affordability is an interesting, affordability is an issue um, not only for WHQS works, but for all capital works. So in any case where a building needs a substantial capital investment in, say, new windows, new roof, new lifts, it's it's every repair issue. Um, And People will remember um, the very sad case um, of Florence Bourne in nineteen, sorry, two thousand and fourteen. Um, she received a fifty thousand pound bill for her share of a new roof, which um, was put on her building, which it later turned out wasn't actually necessary. Um, she died of a heart attack, and the family felt very strongly that she died of shame. She was ninety three; she'd never been in debt in her life, and the fifty thousand pound bill came as a complete shock. That led to caps being imposed in England, limited the amount which can be passed on to tenants where works are partly funded by grant. The cap actually only has some limited effect because it only applies where there is that grant funding. There aren't any equivalent caps in Wales, although I know that councils and social landlords have always worked very, very hard to avoid the impact of significant bills on leaseholders. 
And even before we read the case of um, Florence Bourne and, and heard about Florence Law, Florence Law, um, I was often asked to advise on different ways of making the capital costs affordable and working with landlords to look at various different ways of doing it. Um, and we were looking at very often a combination of different things. Um, so perhaps loans, which could have been interest-bearing or non-interest-bearing. So the landlord would have a formal agreement with the tenant, um, which would make arrangements for repayment. Um, a, a maybe less formal repayment agreement where the landlord simply agrees to defer the costs over up to six years. Um, so the service charge is billed this year, but the landlord agrees with the tenant that they won't enforce as long as the tenant pays in, in instalments. Um, we also advised on landlords taking charges against the leasehold interest so that um, secures the debt. Um, and finally, a lot of landlords gave ten, um, leaseholders the options of buying back their lease and then renting the property to them so they could stay there, they could um, release the, their equity in the property um, and at the same time um, thereby pay the service charge costs. So those are all options outside of the strict lease terms and involved sort of entering into separate agreement with leaseholders, but they were good creative ways of resolving the problem. Now, one option I've often seen used um, is spreading the cost over future years. Um, I think I've, I've heard it described as depreciation. So rather than charging for those capital works when they're actually carried out, the landlords will divide that cost um, over the period of time that they think those capital works are likely to last. Uh, and then they charge the proportion each year. So um, to, to sort of illustrate that by way of example if you had a new lift that was um, cost you say a hundred thousand pounds to install uh, and it was estimated to last a period of 20 years then you'd have a five thousand pound charge being levied each of the years over the 20-year period uh, and then of course that gets divided amongst the um, the tenants in accordance with the, the, their proportions under their leases so that um, is, is clear, uh, clearly an effort to make uh, these costs more affordable. Uh, but there are some potential problems with that approach, aren't there? Um, in particular, in relation to the Section 20B 18-month rule that you referred to above, Becky? Yeah, so it does seem a very sensible way to do it. But um, there are some problems. 18-month um, rule, as you referred to, Rob, um, but also, does the lease actually allow it in the first place? So if the lease says that your service charge, which the, the service charge which you're going to demand this year, is based on the actual costs you've incurred over the past year and what your estimated cost will be over the next year, what you can't do is include in this year's service charge demand something which relates to work which you may have done 10 or even 15 years ago. Um, secondly, as you say, Rob, there's the rule which says you need to bill within 18 months of the cost being incurred. Um, so again, if your service charge demand this year is for something which you incurred more than 18 months ago, you're falling foul of that rule. And lastly, don't forget the requirement to consult. Um, so if a landlord carries out work or enters into a qualifying long-term agreement, which will cost any individual leaseholder more than £250 in a year, I don't think you can get around that by spreading the cost over, say, the 20 years, as per your example, Rob. Um, so in terms of affordability, it makes complete sense, but it may not be something which is allowed by the lease and it isn't allowed by the law unless you find another way of getting around that 18-month rule. So really the best way of doing that is to build the work in full and then have a separate repayment agreement with the leaseholder which achieves the same purpose in that you're spreading the cost over that period, but it, it will need to be an agreement outside the lease. 
or the lease may allow you to create a sinking fund. But that's the same thing, but the other way around. So you try and keep service charges at a consistent level by charging in advance and creating a fund which you then use when something significant needs to be done to avoid the spike in the service charge. But the advice always has to be look very carefully at your lease and particularly if you've got different versions of the lease which have been used over different periods, um, which should always be the starting point. Of course, uh, one of the big political topics in recent years around affordability of service charges uh, has been this question about who pays for historic defects in buildings, so in particular unsafe cladding, and we probably can't allow this um, podcast to pass without just saying something about it. Um, There have been government funding um, schemes to housing associations to assist with those costs, um, and certainly strong government indications or or even warnings that they don't expect tenants to have to pick up the costs. Um, There's also some ongoing litigation being taken by landlords uh, or freehold owners against the companies actually responsible for uh, installing the materials which fell below the required standards or indeed which um, breached building regulations or against the contractors who who breached building regulations. Uh, And that's certainly something which is keeping leaseholder affordability of service charges in the news um, in in recent times. Um, I think also generally leasehold tenure has been viewed a little negatively, certainly in the press in the last few years, um, often as a result of some horror stories around bad landlords and people setting up leaseholds in order to um, in order to gain um, on the part of the landlord rather than for the benefit of the tenant or because of a genuine legal need for a leasehold to be set up. Um, in fact, however, I would say we've seen very few examples of disputes relating to service charges administered by the social housing sector landlords. Yeah, and I think part of that is because in my experience, what the social housing sector are very good at is um, communication with leaseholders. So communication before works are done, um, whether or not a formal consultation is required, although in most cases it will be, um, and identifying leaseholders' views, um, looking at leaseholders who do require some help in meeting their financial responsibilities. And as I say, in, in my experience, the sector works very well creatively and collaboratively to, to avoid disputes. Yeah, so... Whilst doing WHQS works, I think probably many landlords had to find creative ways to avoid sending those really big bills, uh, and that's certainly what we saw happening o- over recent years. Now that's generally out of the way, I, I, I must say I do wonder whether there's, there's really an opportunity here for landlords to look at how these works are funded going forward. Um, for the reasons we you were chatting us through a little bit earlier on, uh, Becky, we've seen that that depreciation model doesn't doesn't perhaps work due to the um, due to the legal requirements or the legal issues around it but the thinking really is sound thinking um, and um, you know I suppose the way to achieve that is to go down the sink the sinking fund route um, that you've you've um, explained so estimating essentially costs over the next say 20 years and then make taking from the tenants modest payments each year in order to create that sinking fund which the landlord then holds as a trustee for the leaseholders and then uses that to pay for large items um, of expenditure. But the thing to really um, appreciate is if you're going to go down that route then you're going to need to change the standard wording of new leases and you're going to have to enter into deeds of variation with existing lessees and their uh, and their mortgage companies as well, assuming they've got them, um, 
and I, I, from practical experience, I'd say it's sometimes quite difficult to convince um, leaseholders uh, to commit to those sorts of charges where leaseholders only have plans to own the leasehold for relatively short periods of time. Uh, perhaps a little easier when people um, know that they want to live in that leasehold for uh, a very long period to the rest of their lives or, or whatever, it, it, certainly a, a, a long duration of time. Whereas if certainly if you've got someone who's sort of stuck stepping onto the property ladder and sees this as, as their first home and they may only be there um, for or plan to be there for a few years, it's often the case they don't really see the benefit to them of paying a sinking fund during the short period of their ownership. Um, of course, uh, it, it may also be the case that leaseholders are still paying for um, the WHQS works via deferred payment methods um, that, that we've also talked about, in which case setting up a sinking fund at the same time uh, would be an additional pressure on affordability. Yes, absolutely. But it's it's definitely an opportunity for landlords to take stock and think about um, whether some element of future planning would help. Um, but again, I think it's worthwhile emphasising a couple of points. The lease is the key document. It determines what a landlord can charge and how the landlord can charge. Um, and so you can be very, very creative, but you, you can't move away from what the lease allows. Or if you do move away from it, as, as you said, Rob, then the lease will need to be varied. And landlords then need to bear in mind the landlord and tenant Act um, statutory requirements, consultation, reasonableness, and the eighteen-month rule. And unfortunately, you can't contract out of those. Um, they are things which you you have to comply with. But it comes down again for me. The key is always communication with the leaseholders, and and communication, good communication, will very often avoid pro- future problems. Yep, that that's that's really useful advice. I think Becky, um, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. Um, and it just remains for me to say, I uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you on a, another podcast in the future. Thanks, Rob. If you would like to take part in the conversation, suggest a topic, or need some further guidance for your organisation, please get in touch at socialhousing at hjtalks. .co.uk. For more information on Hugh James and the services we offer, visit hughjames.com or check us out on Twitter at PropertyHJ.